Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Born to Rain. I am Tim, joined here by my co-host Jeremiah. What's up? The last few weeks we've been covering probably everybody's favorite topic. We say every topic is our favorite, uh, but one of the most engaging topics in Christianity is the topic of end times. Um, one of our last episodes, we discussed the end times and what God's plan for history is as we see it, as we read the, the scriptures, um, often known as post-millennialism. It's a very optimistic view of history. Um, and as we presented that case, we kind of laid out how we see history unfolding from a biblical perspective. Uh, and we got a lot of feedback from, from the episode um, with questions and objections and, you know, challenges to us. Uh, and so we kind of wanted to circle back a little bit and address some of these uh, questions and objections that people have had uh, and uh, dis discuss what the, um, you called it a steel man. You want to explain what a steel man is? Yeah, so a steel man is when you take the opposite position from you and you say, you know, if... If I was this person, I would use these arguments. These are their best arguments. And then you dismantle those arguments and show why even those fall short. So it's acknowledging that you do recognize they, they have some arguments, right? And, and sometimes they can be good. But when you are able to deal with the best, and in my opinion, they have some, they have some arguments that are better than others, right. then it further solidifies uh, our position that we've considered the other side right and we have I, I grew up dispensational i used to read george campbell morgan on my free time my dad had all of his all of his stuff i mean charles ryrie ci schoolfield uh not a lot of macarthur but he was i would listen to macarthur uh so yeah i've i'm excited for this one and it's only natural that when we present a positive case like we did that you're gonna have questions right because we didn't we didn't go after the other side. We just simply said what we believe and we didn't really do the negative side of things. Right. So let's, um, we, we walked through last time, we walked through pretty much the whole Bible, um, and, and tracked through history, kind of the way God was, was moving in history and the, the plan that, that he put into place. But I think it'd be helpful to rewind a little bit and define some of the terms. You know, the, the term dispensational has been thrown around quite a bit. Um, we haven't really defined it a whole lot. Um, and so it, it's helpful to say, okay, if we're gonna answer objections, we have to realize that the objectors are diverse. And so while we can't always address it from every single side that's, that's coming in, um, we wanna address it from uh, a, a few different perspectives um, and primarily as we've said, the, the dispensational side, where we've already addressed um, in previous episodes, we've addressed um, covenant theology, mm -hmm. which is um, distinctly different from dispensational theology. Um, and then we talked postmillennialism and we talked uh, Calvinism. And so a lot of that was kind of laying the groundwork for covering some of these subjects because we have to have a, a baseline for discussing this this subject kind of has to say, okay, here's some of our pre-assumptions. Um, so 
if you if you haven't listened to those episodes, go back and listen to the the covenant theology episode, the Calvinism episode, and our end times episode where we kind of lay some of our groundwork for where we're coming from uh, on this. But today to discuss those things, if we're going to define uh, dispensationalism as the as the primary where a lot of the feedback came from, uh, how would you define what dispensationalism is? When you when you say dispensationalism, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the popular American theological system that was developed in the 1800s, and it separates scripture into seven, seven, seven distinct <laughs> dispensations. Dispensation meaning like an administration of time. Uh, and in those seven dispensations, God deals with mankind in a certain way. Uh, so the first dispensation is innocence. The second one is conscience. The third one's human government. Then you have promise, law, grace, and Christ's reign. So they believe that Adam started in innocence, and then you had, from a certain period to a certain period, all they had was conscience. And well, right, so, right now I we're in correct, we're in grace, and then we're going to be in Christ's reign. Right. And so if you if you rewind, the each dispensation is marked by God giving a command or a law or a covenant, and the end of the dispensation is marked by man's failure to keep that covenant. Right. So in the dispensation of innocence, God gives a command. He says, don't eat from the tree at the end of the covenant or at the end of that dispensation, you have, um, man, Adam failing to keep the covenant. Right. Then you have conscience that leads up to the flood, a failure to keep it. God's judgment. So it's often linked to man's failure, judgment. God gives a new command. Mm -hmm. Well, they're kind of like us. Like there's no, the word covenant isn't in Genesis it's one and two. Right. But we acknowledge that there's a covenant of works there because you can see it. And it says in Hosea 6, 7 that there was. Right. Well, conscience, the conscience dispensation wasn't explicitly given. Right. That's something that they infer based off of scripture. So it doesn't have to be explicitly given for them. Uh, but Charles Ryrie does say that each dispensation is a period of testing. Right. Wherein God gives, it's a, it's a testing period. And when man fails, he moves on to a different one. Right. So... And so that's what kind of informs and drives um, dispensational thought. And it's not even primarily um, about the seven dispensations. Most of it is actually, when you refer to dispensationalism, it, the most thorough um, work of dispensationalism deals with ecclesiology, the study of the church, yeah. um, and specifically distinguishing what God is doing in history um, with Jews and Gentiles. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the primary hallmark of a dispensational uh, line of reasoning is that the church and Israel are two distinctly different bodies. Yeah, it comes that, down to that. And that God's um, dealings with those are two separate things, mm-hmm. um, which then leads through, when you get to the New Testament, you have Christ coming and the administration of the law that was given to Moses they fail to keep Christ comes in judgment on Israel, cutting them off for a time and putting the church as a parenthesis that the Gentiles will be saved now. So God has turned his back on Israel for the time being to turn and focus on Gentile believers to a future point when, um, Israel will be dealt with again in a, in a tribulation period. So we're most just, just heads up. We're mostly speaking about classical dispensationalism right now. Right. There's all sorts of different kinds of dispensational uh, systems. The most prominent today would be that of progressive 
dispensationalism, which, uh, at the risk of offending somebody, is basically covenant theology <laughs> because they, they basically borrow everything from us and just, you know, switch some things out. Only, uh, only distinguishing Israel and the church. Right. That there are specific promises. Mm-hmm. But um, if you, just, just to really show that distinguishment between Israel and the church, how that can be, how that shows itself in its theology, uh, that it, it can start to explain the rapture, for example. That's one of their theological reasons why the rapture must happen, must happen before the uh, seven-year tribulation is because they, according to their system, they'll trace through Scripture and say God does not deal with Jews and Gentiles at the same time. So he must therefore remove his Gentile church before he deals with the Jews. Right. So a lot of a lot of their theology stems from believing that Israel and the church are two separate, complete, completely separate entities. Right. And that distinction carries its way through almost all of their theology. And so as we define the the eschatological positions, the three main um, distinctions that have been made are post-millennialism, the, the position that we hold to, um, amillennialism, and premillennialism, and then dispensational thought is a, a, a more specific view of a premillennial thought. Yeah. Um, is that Christ, uh, God the Father, made promises to Israel, ethnic Israel, the, the physical descendants of Abraham, and those have to be fulfilled literally on the earth. You said the key um, word. And so the the um, the reign of Christ, the reign of Messiah, has to be on earth, which means that that puts them squarely in a premillennial camp. That mm-hmm. Christ will come prior to a thousand-year earthly reign. Yeah. Where a postmillennial thought says we are in the reign of Christ until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. And he returns on the last day of history mm-hmm. to offer up the kingdom to the Father. Um, right. Where we get that is First uh, Corinthians 15. Something you said that's important to point out is that also their system is derived from a certain hermeneutic. What hermeneutic means is how you read scripture and interpret scripture. Right. Their hermeneutic is literal. They claim to read the Bible literally, biblically, and historically. That's their thing. If, you have, if you've ever heard somebody say that to you, then they're most likely dispensational. So that that's their way of reading scripture. It's literal and grammatical, historical. Grammatical. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so and they will lob the accusation at us that we are over-spiritualizing or over-symbolizing the text. Um, but that's their hermeneutic. They really like to hammer that, that yep. particular hermeneutic. So if you, if you throw that out there, there's your the, the maybe the primary objection that I've heard at least um, from a, a postmillennial or an amillennial thought um, from a, a premillennial dispensational um, camp would be, well, you symbolize everything um, as though that's a bad thing, right? Um, and I for for a long time when I would when I would have been on the on the opposite side, it would have been a, a challenge for me to go. Oh, you're just you're just symbolizing everything. It's like, mm-hmm. well, okay, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> um, that, that's a that's a strange argument, um, right? That because the Bible uses symbols, um, and, and you can't you can't avoid symbolic language um, because uh, even Jesus, when he's using parables, everybody goes, oh, 
when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a mustard seed that's planted and grows into the largest tree in the garden, nobody's thinking, oh, God's coming to plant a, a tree. We should be looking for a, a mustard tree that's going to be growing. Mm-hmm. Where's the garden? we got to go find that, that tree in the garden. Everybody knows that those are um, uh, symbolic languages. That's parabolic language. Um, and so we shouldn't be afraid to say, oh, well, he used symbolic language to illustrate a point. To, to let our minds grasp what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's important to point out, Revelation says in the very beginning of the book, he says, John writes and says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And listen to this. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So that word signified he came and symbolized <laughs> he came and symbolized these things by his angel so john specifically tells us in the beginning of revelation that this book is a sign book it's a sim- it's a symbolic book right uh there it, within the postmillennial camp there are people who take li- revelation more literally than others mm-hmm. a great example would be phil kaiser uh, i don't know if he's dr phil kaiser or not so i don't mean any disrespect but yep. phil kaiser uh he tends to take stuff more literally and uh, other people don't. So within postmillennialism, you do have some a spectrum. Yeah. Um, but the but here's the, here's the fact of the matter. Nobody takes all of Scripture literally. We take it naturally. When Jesus comes, he's walking down the street, and John the Baptist says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." If you take that literally, you're going to think Man. that there was literally. <laughs> you're going to think there's literally a lamb down the street. Right. Well, obviously. John was using symbolic language drawn on drawing on the Old Testament to describe that Jesus was going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Right. So not even the most literal dispensational person takes all of scripture literally. That's just straight up not true. We take it naturally. How was it meant to be taken? Right. We look at authorial intent. What did John how did John want us to read this? That's how you read scripture. Yep. So when we when we deal with the time frame reference the the dispensational um camp versus the post-millennial camp um are really the the two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the end time scenario um the dispensational side will say things are going to get worse and worse um until christ comes back to make everything better the post-millennialist says um christ is making things better and better as we speak, um, to the point where his return will be the best of the best things that happen. Um, and so it, it puts you, you know, some, some have just termed post-millennialism optimillennialism. Um, and overall it is kind of, uh, strange that we've, we've based all of these things off of a one chapter of scripture. Yeah. (laughs) One word. Um, it's like, it's used in three verses of one chapter in one book of the Bible. Yes, thousand years, and so then, if you just step back, okay, what is the the nature and the the characteristics of the kingdom of Christ um, and the return of Christ? And it really kind of shakes up what you what you look at when you're just strictly looking at a thousand years. Um, it, it makes it a little bit easier to interpret. So if we look, then. Um, First, that when we say things are getting better in history, um, and we tracked through that in our first episode about it, 
um, hey, look, here's what Christ was doing. He was building, building, building to his first coming. Um, and I think that's one of the, the things that you have to be really, really careful of. Um, a lot of people will criticize a postmillennialist to say that um, the, the, coming, the second coming of Christ has already taken place. That would be called full preterism, um, and that we're not waiting for any future return of Christ, which is not the position that we hold to. We no. believe that Christ will come back. Um, That's what we call heresy. Right. That's what the kids call heresy. <laughs> because we'll, we confess in, our, in the Apostles' Creed um, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, and from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So, mm-hmm. so our, our basic confession says Christ is going to come back. So, so just to dismiss that off the table, um, and, we'll, and we'll get into this in a little bit, some of the, the, what coming, the coming of Christ, the coming of God, the day of the Lord, what some of that kind of refers to as judgment. Yes. And so there, there are different types of comings. We need to talk about the word Maranatha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's answer some some uh, some cues. Yeah. Okay. So here's the first here's the first question that we got. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read a little bit of it. This is pretty long. He said, "You said something to the effect of, i 'I'd rather have a cavity today than 500 years ago, and we have all these nice cars and you know all that.'" He says, "How is this an indication of being in the millennial reign? One could make the argument that more luxuries we have, the further we are from God in general." For example, the rich man going through the... It's, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven uh, than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Right. So he's basically saying, you guys are using riches as an example of blessing of millennial blessings, but sometimes in Scripture, riches are, are not seen that way. Um, Paul, when he tells Timothy, beware, the love of money is the root is a root of all kinds of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's all about where your perspective is. Are you are you looking to the money as your savior? Are you looking to the worldly possessions? Um, because we could very easily look at um, the advances in medical technology and say, look at look at this kingdom that we've built for ourselves. Um, we've we've cheated death. We're beating death um, on a daily basis. Things that people would have died from just a few hundred years ago. Um, we're not dying from anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, look at how look at how great we are, uh, and I think a lot of that we have done. And I think, to some extent, uh, medical technology will slow when um, we fail to acknowledge God as the good giver of it. Um, but God uses common grace that an atheist scientist can look at the way the world works, and the world will work the way God designed it to work. And he can design a medical tool that will save lives and produce blessing for people. Um, and, and God is building towards that. So even people who are not acknowledging that um, are, are failing to see God's gracious working in those things. Um, some of the biggest scientific advances over the last thousand years have been made by Christians. Um, so the, the Christian... Um, research and development, if you will, um, is pushing technology forward. When it comes to um, looking at those things and saying, oh, this is, um, th- this is us idolizing our technology, um, that's not to say that that's not God's blessing still. 
Mm. Um, Cause God made blessing. God made promise of blessing to his people before they took the land in Deuteronomy. Yeah. So they're about to take the land and he's promising physical material blessings for, for the people that follow his law, that, that follow his word. That's it, key because in reaction to the prosperity gospel, there's been a lot of people, I've heard it said, somebody said it to me one time and I was like, where, where did you get that? that? They said blessings in the Bible, material things are never referred to as blessings, but that's just ludicrous. That's not true. So that's kind of weird, but it's a reaction to the prosperity gospel that is unwarranted. Right. And, and we've opposed that with a, a poverty gospel, that God wants you to be poor. Exactly. God wants you to not have nice things. I would want to point out in Psalm 112, um, it says, uh, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Uh, Proverbs 10, 22, bless, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. So just like you just said, Tim, the poverty gospel is the reaction to the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches it, treats God's covenant blessings like a vending machine. Right. The poverty gospel takes the whole thing and turns it on its head. Right. In some ways, poverty gospel is more logically ludicrous than the prosperity gospel. Uh, let me let me give an example. Uh, the Bible says that the preaching of the word of God produces repentance. The prosperity gospel person is going to take that and take it too woodenly and say, so every time I preach the gospel, repentance will be produced and treat it like a vending machine. Right. Mm-hmm. The poverty gospel will say that they'll flip it on its head and say the preaching of the word produces the opposite of repentance because that's it. That's what they do with riches. They say, well, actually, no, the poorer you are, the more godly you are. Right. Uh, so in some ways, what they teach is logically more insane than their prosperity gospel. Uh, and it's an over re- it's an overcorrection and overreaction to something that is very bad, which is the prosperity gospel. Right. Well, and then jump over and look at what um, Paul writes in the New Testament. So you have 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing that there, there's a coming day of the Lord, that, that, um, that the day of the Lord is coming. And then 2 Thessalonians, he hears this rumor, and 2 Thessalonians is written right on the tail of 1 Thessalonians, where he has to address some of the misconceptions that are found in the first book. And he, he writes and follows it up. And one of the things that was happening was that he said, the day of the Lord is coming. And a bunch of people who read that said, oh, the day of the Lord is coming. I don't need to work anymore. And Paul rebukes them and says, um, no, 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 no. You need, <laughs> need to go back, get your job. You need to keep working. You need to keep providing for your family. He told Timothy um, that a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Um, so in waiting for the day of the Lord and waiting for the day of God's judgment, that doesn't mean that you give up. It doesn't mean that you stop working. And he tells them it's one of uh, people's most, most popular, I'd say it's a parent's most popular verse to use against their kid who won't do house chores. If a man is unwilling to work, he shall not eat. <laughs> and that's the point is God provides for people who do work who put the effort in. Um, we're not saved by our works, but he gives blessings in proportion to the work that is done. Right. There's um, a, that's just how the world works. God set up the world and how Paul says, 
The Lord is not mocked. He rewards people according to their deeds. So the Lord set up the world where if you work, you get rewarded. Now there are certain various times, such as the book of Job, where you might be the most righteous man on earth and you just don't get rewarded. Well, that's within God's righteous purview to do that. But that doesn't mean that you don't recognize the way that things ordinarily work within creation. And that goes back to your vending machine analogy, is that uh, we think that necessarily if we put a good work in, that necessarily candy comes out. Um, sometimes we put good work in and um, famine comes out. Right. The it's more like farming. You plant a seed, and if God waters it, then stuff, then you get a harvest. Sometimes you have a, a, a reaping, you know, overflowing harvest. Sometimes the rain doesn't come, um, and you have to praise God for both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to answer the, the original question then is that luxury and um, wealth um, I don't think our, it's not an open shut case that oh this is definite evidence that we're living in the kingdom of God. Um, I think it's one thing that you can practically point to. Um, I was talking with my brother a, a few weeks ago, and he he was reading this book called Better Than It Seems or Better Than It Looks, written by an unbeliever um, who's looking at the world and people are going oh the world is falling apart this is just awful and he gives like I think it's like ten chapters of here's all these different areas of how things are actually getting better, and they're, they're better than they appear. Um, things like world poverty is at an all-time low. That people, people are the, the amount of people who are starving to death is lower than it's ever been. So while we haven't solved world hunger, that's one of our the, the humanitarians' favorite. Uh, we have to solve world hunger. Uh, we haven't solved it. There are still people suffering and starving to death, um, but those numbers are steadily declining. We are solving the problem. It's not an overnight solving, uh, but it is being being driven forward. Um, and as the technology advances, the fact that we have a podcast that can be heard around the world um, where we just talk about the Bible, uh, that the fact that there are radio stations in every city uh, proclaiming the word of God, you know, it, it's it, it cracks me up. You know, sometimes when you hear these, uh, you'll turn on the radio and you'll have, uh, you know, somebody like John MacArthur is saying, um, the world is getting worse and worse. Um, it's all falling apart as he's standing in a multi-million dollar building broadcasting over a multi-million dollar radio station to millions of people around the world. Uh, and he's telling them that the world is falling apart as he's preaching the gospel. And people who otherwise would never show up in a church um, stumble across this radio station and hear the word of God preached. It's like, wow, uh, you can, uh, sometimes you, you, miss, you miss the irony uh, in it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so next so, question. Okay. Why is post-millennialism so fringe today? Why does everybody think you're so weird, Tim? And why, when I bring it up to people, dismiss it out of hand as a weird view and it's out there and you're getting into weird stuff and, oh, Tim, Tim, that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, one of, one of the, the big challenges, and I think it's really unfortunate, um, is the timing at which dispensationalism became popular. Um, John Nelson Darby and uh, Charles, Charles Schofield, C.I. Schofield, I think it was Charles, um, uh, start producing and, and pushing uh, post, uh, premillennial dispensational um, thought that the world is, is going to fall apart. Um, that there's an antichrist on the way uh, who's going to deceive the nations and we're going to have this this tribulation period. Um, 
and then within 30 years as as their as their thought and their that you know their their system starts to gain some traction within 30 years you have the civil war in america you have world war 1 world war 2 so within 100 about 100 years of the um the presentation of this system you have 100 years of war and calamity and just awful awful stuff going on um, so then when you have a preacher saying things are going to get worse and worse, and then it goes from Civil War to World War One to World War II, um, and then even after World War II, you have other conflicts that continue to happen. Um, everybody has to look at that and go, oh, wow, uh, this is uh, this is getting worse. Um, so some of it I, th- I see as um, timing. Um, one of the things that you, you've used in the past is um, post-millennial marketing. Uh, and I think I, I like that phrase that, that you use. Uh, maybe you could... Um, explained it a little bit better um but the the post-millennial marketing used by uh dispensational thought yeah so what i mean by that is post-millennialism is known for producing people who take advantage of their circumstances build things do things advance their cause well that's exactly what dispensationalists did with their doctrine they took advantage of every marketing tool they wrote booklets they held conferences they had uh we would call them afterglows <laughs> um, where their doctrines would be confirmed through the speaking of tongues and stuff. Um, they used every single marketing tool known to man at the time and it blew up. Mm-hmm. So it was a brilliant marketing campaign. They marketed dispensationalism in a post-millennial fashion. And that's, uh, that's why today Canon Press, uh, Christ Church, peop- uh, entities like that are gaining the most traction when it comes to postmillennialism because they're the only ones marketing the way that John yep. Nelson Darby did. Yep. Apologia Studios. Yep. Um, yeah, all, all those guys. Um, it, it's really important that we use... Um, and so I think part of that is engaging in the in the culture. Um, and to some extent, the, the, the postmillennial, the optimistic view by war and calamity was kind of elbowed out of the the public square Amer- this this is one of the the funny things that I, I think um, historic theology is actually really important um, that, that a lot of people are unaware of um, and and I'll give I'll give credit to a dispensational thought you can you can read scripture um, and and take the dispensational line of reasoning and say oh yeah in the last days, uh, men will be lovers of themselves, angry, revilers, um, you know, go through that whole list that Paul gives Timothy um, and go, oh, wow, I see that in the world today. Um, you know, it, it says that there will be trials and tribulations, wars and rumors of wars and all that. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 yep, I, I see that. Check, check, check. Um, and and push, push that through and then say, oh, this has happened all through church history. And then you hear somebody say, um, no, I think things are going to get better, and the gospel is going to go throughout the entire world. And they go, well, nobody's ever believed that. Look, Paul even says that in the last days people would be like this. And then there, there's just, a, I don't think it's a willful ignorance. I don't even necessarily think it's intentionally deceptive. I just think it's um, because that optimism has been elbowed out of the, the public square. Uh, people don't know that 90% of the people who founded America, most of the founding fathers, the, you know, Plymouth Pound, uh, Plantation, uh, uh, yeah, um, was post-millennialist. Yep. America's most famous theologian, Jonathan Edwards, 
was a post-millennialist. Um, he believed that the gospel was going forth and that starting America was God spreading his gospel to the nations. And America for 200 years has been viewed as a Christian nation. Um, why? Because it was founded on people who believed that the work that they were going to do was going to last. It was going to accomplish something. It wasn't going to fall apart. They were building towards, um, they knew that God was going to build his kingdom, but they were, they were being fruitful in the place that they were, that they were put. Um, so it's, it's sad to hear people say, um, oh, it's such a fringe group. You know, you guys are weird for believing that, um, history is going to get better. Um, when that was the driving force up until about 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's like sitting and eating a big bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream. And I'm sitting across the table and somebody's churning ice cream. And I'm like, you're weird. Why are you churning ice cream? And you're just saying that through, you're just smacking, eating that ice cream. That's exactly what dispensationalists are doing. They're like, you guys are weird. That's that. That's, that's that post millennialism stuff is so fringe, and you shouldn't. And while they're literally eating the benefits of our post millennial fathers, though I think an argument country. could be made that um, eating mint chocolate chip ice cream is not a benefit. <laughs> it's a benefit to the soul. Okay? That sounds that sounds like a judgment from God to have to eat <laughs> mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> what? Oh, dude, that's heresy. Uh, but might as well just eat toothpaste. But oh, um, are you serious right now? Okay, you've never had the mint chocolate chip ice cream from the ice cream shop in Georgetown. Nope. Okay. Well then, you'll have to try that and then get back to me. Okay. But you, you see my point though. <laughs> yeah. That they're they're eating the benefits of our post the post millennial fathers that started this country, and if just to do a quick historical survey, the American Revolution was called the Presbyterian Revolt in England. Right. Well, Presbyterians are overwhelmingly post-millennial. Those pesky Presbyterians. And so the Presbyterians gave their lives fighting in the American Revolution. The Baptists, uh, they they tended not to because the, the Anabaptist roots, they tended to be pacifists. They weren't, they weren't going to fight in a war. So historically, another huge reason why I think dispensationalism took over the country is because post-millennialists gave their lives for it, and then they handed it over to the uh, Baptists who are more prone to falling for dispensationalism because of their already Baptistic hermeneutic. And then things just started going down from there. So for everybody who says postmillennialism is fringe, actually, for the majority of America's history thus far, postmillennialism was the majority view. Yep. And that's not to say that the Americans who, who were here, Jonathan Edwards being the the poster child for it, um, that they didn't invent it. They didn't show up to America and go, oh, yeah, see, look, there's prosperity and, and goodness and, and God's grace, so things must be getting better. They, it wasn't like they made that up because that was there. And so if you track it even farther back through, through church history, the overwhelming optimism of um, the entire church history. Um, Calvin was a postmillennialist. Um, Augustine. Augustine in the third century, 300, three to 400 AD. Athanasius. Is um, optimistic. Um, and even even the, the amount of people in the, the, the first several centuries of the church were looking and saying, this gospel is going to take over the world. Um, and so... Uh, there you, you have a book on that, don't you? Yeah. It, um, what is it? Um, 
the early Always Victorious by uh, Francis Nigel Lee. And he's, he's pointing to um, how the early church, and he has a lot of citations of early church fathers that were talking in optimistic terms, um, even in the, the first century. So, Okay, next question. Let's go. What about Israel? What about it? Um, are you anti-Semitic? Do I believe in replacement theology? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that's another <laughs> word for it. Yeah. Um, no. And okay, yes. next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was easy. Um, no, because uh, when, when God gives the, the, um, the blessing to Abraham, he gives the Abrahamic covenant, and he says um, uh, that through him all nations would be blessed. Um, and that includes his physical descendants. His natural-born children um, are included in that. Uh, when you read uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, uh, you see this discussion of Israel and that Israel has, has received a partial hardening um, so that the, the nations could come in. Mm-hmm. Um, our Bible reading challenge just went through Isaiah, and you have the... the language of all of the nations are going to stream up to Zion, Jerusalem. It's the, the fulfillment that God gave that, that promise to Israel, and we're seeing that lived out. They see it lived out in front of them, and it's actually a judgment on them for rejecting their Messiah. And yet, when they see all of the nations have come in, they turn and they see Christ as their Messiah, and they return. Right. Um, and so... Um, the, the Westminster Confession um, gives us a command to pray for the conversion of Israel. Um, even Paul was praying for the conversion of the Jews. Um, so we're not saying that the church has replaced Israel. I would actually say that the church predates Israel. The church starts with um, Adam and the giving of the gospel to um, the, the woman, saying that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. That was the founding of the church. And Adam trained up his sons to do that. They were offering sacrifices uh, uh, of praise before God. Uh, they offer those sacrifices, uh, and God accepted some and rejected others. The, the holy and pure offerings were, were accepted. The ones that were not were rejected. That was before the Abrahamic covenant. Um, Noah was told to offer a sacrifice as a righteous man after the flood. After the judgment of God, he offers this, and God gives uh, promises to, to the people. Um, so that's, that's pre-Abraham, too. So Abraham then comes along, and God says, through your seed, all nations will be blessed, uh, really pointing towards Christ and that he's, he's coming to redeem the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's this establishment that he's, he's giving Israel a front-row seat to the redemption of mankind. Um, and so it's not to say that the church replaced Israel. It's to say that the tree in Romans 11 is Christ. The root does not, you do not support the root, the root supports you. How much more is the uh, natural branch going to be grafted back in? That's what he's talking about. So they're hardening, they rejected their Messiah, they received judgment for it. And then Christ. Um, who is the natural tree, who is the tree. He's the, the root that uh, comes up from uh, the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11, um, that he blesses all nations 
and uh, Israel will be included in that. Flip it to the dispensational thought that says there's coming a time when God is going to pour out his wrath on Israel and two-thirds or more are going to be slaughtered. Where, where, who, has, who has a more optimistic view of the, the salvation of Israel? Right. So I just want to throw out some scriptures, some scriptural reasons real quick. This is probably not going to change anybody's mind because it's such a, a quick thing, but it's important uh, to know that we have scriptural reasons. So a lot of people will say, well, God made promises to Israel and he can't revoke them, so now what? So what do you do with that? Well, Paul addresses that in Galatians 3. He says, brothers, let me put it let me put you let me put this to you in human terms. Even a human covenant once it is ratified cannot be canceled or amended. So Paul agrees. You can't revoke promises, you can't revoke covenants. Then he moves on. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So now Paul's explaining the covenant which is irrevocable and it says the scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many, but to into your seed, meaning the one who is Christ. So Paul explains this covenant that God made with Abraham, and it's the covenant that all of the Jews say, we are sons of Abraham, we're the Jews. And Paul says that this covenant was to singular seed, Christ. So what does that mean? Well, when somebody raises the objection saying that, well, you believe that Christ's promises to Israel have failed, I said, no, you misunderstand. Christ's promise to Israel was his seed, Christ. That's, that's kind of the point of the book of Matthew, is that Christ is the true Israel. And Paul and Matthew affirms that time and time again. For example, when, when Jesus leaves the desert, Matthew says, so that it may be fulfilled, as the Old Testament says, out of Israel, I, out of Egypt, I called my son. So Christ is the true Israel. All who are grafted into Christ through baptism are part of the true Israel. So somebody, I said this to somebody the other day, I don't remember what, why or when or where, but um, they said, so God cut off Israel. And I said, he cut off Israel, but not Israel, because not all Israel is Israel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how God, that's how the Bible speaks of Israel. You have, Israel is used in two different ways. The ethnic uh, people group. The descendants of Jacob, who is named Israel. Right. Yeah. Or you have also the spiritual Israel, which are those who believe. In in, in Romans 2, Paul Paul says, all who are, uh, are, are you, do you have Romans 2 up? No, I have uh, John 8 up here. Okay, let me finish uh, Romans 2 yeah. then. In Romans 2, Paul says, he's not a Jew who is circumcised outwardly. He is a true Jew who was circumcised inwardly. Well, in the book of Colossians, Paul says, if you believe in Christ, you have been circumcised with a circumcision that is not done with hands in your heart. So in a way, the church is the true Israel. We never replaced Israel. We've always been the true Israel. But God has made certain promises to the ethnic people that he will bring them back and graft them back into the covenant. Right. And then to continue that thought of seed, um, John 8, um, Jesus, it says, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So he's saying, here's the gospel, believing in Christ makes you free. And then they said, um, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man, which is just hilarious. Um, it's like, you guys don't even know your own history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Israel has been marked by nothing but bondage for most most of their history. Um, How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye still seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. He says, your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that have told you, which I have heard from God, this is not of a- this did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Um, and then he goes on to basically call them the children of Satan. And they're like, say what? <laughs> right, and that's, that's what Paul's expanding on even more in Galatians when he says, therefore, if you believe, you are the seed of Abraham because you're in Christ and therefore children of Abraham. And so when, he, when he's basically telling them, just because you're physical descendants of Abraham doesn't make you Abraham's descendants. Right. Um, and he says, because Abraham rejoice to see my day and they basically freak out and try and kill him yeah because he he claims before abraham was i am and so he he takes that and he says look um if your heart like you were saying from colossians if your heart isn't circumcised you fail you miss the whole point um you can it doesn't matter who your who your parents were if you're if the heart doesn't change um you're not my descendants. And so it ends up being, again, a judgment on ethnic Israel when the Gentiles see and hear and believe and have hearts changed and are not the physical seed of Abraham. And then Jesus and Paul call them the seed. They're adopted. They're grafted in. They're, they're, a, part of, they're a part of God's people. They are Israel. The, the nations are streaming in uh, to Israel. They're becoming a part of it. So um, that, that's uh, God's working through history. So overview comes down to that overview. We don't believe in replacement theology because you can't replace what was already there. Right. Uh, we we believe we have a very hopeful view of Israel. I pray for the conversion of the Jews. It's like it's instructed for us. We've done it for five hundred years. This group of replacement theologians that hates the Jews have prayed for them for five hundred years. How weird is that? Yeah. Uh, but there are amillennial, I will say, there are amillennial people who have a view that Israel is not really, well, they don't believe the world's going to be saved at all, so they don't believe Israel's going to be saved. So it's kind of, you, you can get, some some of the bad taste that is left in the mouth of dispensationalists comes from amillennial people when it comes to the Jews. And, and, I, and I understand is something that. that it, the, the difference is, and perhaps we should have defined this earlier, is that amillennial is a negate it's an, a negative term to say that there's no earthly millennium uh, that's to say god is regenerating people and his kingdom is purely spiritual the post-millennialist says that god regenerates people he saves individuals and those saved individuals produce fruit in the world and live god-honoring lives they they start god-honoring businesses um 
they run for office and are become God honoring governors and mayors and presidents and legislators, um, even some kings. You know, depending on the the system that God God working in the hearts of individuals transforms societies because as the individuals submit to the lordship of Christ, societies submit to the lordship of Christ, and that's how th- that that's how the kingdom of God grows and it manifests itself on earth that that God blesses nations who submit to his word, who who honor him, as, honor Christ as king. That's a, a fundamental um, mark of post-millennialism so that, yes, we're living, in, we're living in the kingdom now and Christ is ruling his kingdom from heaven, but there's, a, there's an earthly manifestation of it. It's not purely ethereal. But it's being generated when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Um, what, what he's not saying is that it has no effect on this world. We're saying that his authority and the results of which his kingdom come are not derived from this world. We can't, ma- we can't fakely manufacture the kingdom of God. It has to come from heaven to earth. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, um, at, uh, um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, that, that this is how it's supposed to happen. As, a, as, a, as you rule from heaven, we want to see it done on earth as perfectly as it's done in heaven. Okay. You want to move on to the steel man? Steel man. Let's, okay, so let's hear he, it. Here's, my, here's what I think their best, <clears throat> their best argument is. Um, double fulfillment. The, I think the best argument from a dispensational premillennial standpoint is the position of that 70 AD that um, all this stuff that we point to in the past was a double was a type of what's to come right. at the very end. So maybe maybe we should rewind and kind of re re clarify some of our uh, position on on that. Um, oh, because the tribulation period, mm-hmm. we believe there's a, a tribulation period. When scripture is teaching of it, when we read scripture, you're reading first century authors or before, you know, Old Testament um, writings uh, are speaking in future terms. Um, what we're not saying is that those are always future, forever. They have they have to come to pass at some point, and everybody will every all, all Christians recognize a prophecy has to come has to come to pass eventually, um, in order for it to be true. Uh, so our position is that when some of these prophecies were given, they were given in the future for the author, but are not necessarily future for us. That's where the, the term preterism comes from. We referenced that earlier. You have a full preterism or hyper preterism that will say, um, that all of it, all of scripture is past. We're not saying that that's, that's, that's over the line. What we're saying is that some of these events, some of these prophecies, were in the, the future of the writer, but are actually in our past. Preter being the Latin word for past. And so we're, we're looking, these are, these are past things. So we can look back in history and go, okay, uh, there's a, a seven-year period of tribulation and trial for Israel. From Daniel chapter 9, we know that Daniel was referring to a time of Jacob's trouble, the, the time where Israel would be judged by God. What we view is that the Jewish-Roman war 
that lasted from 66 AD to 73 AD was that fulfillment and that the slaughter of Jews throughout the Roman Empire in that time period, that uh, seven-year period, was the fulfillment of that tribulation period, that it was laid out there. So we're not then looking forward to a future fulfillment of that. The dispensational view will say that that has not that tribulation has not happened, and that there's a double fulfillment. That um, yes, 70 A.D. happened. That there was a um, a destruction of the temple. A lot of Jews died, but that's only a, a small taste of how bad things will be in the future. Yeah, and so what? One thing that gives their argument credence is in Isaiah 7. There is a type of double fulfillment with the virgin birth, where Isaiah prophesies the virgin birth and his daughter in some way topologically fulfills that, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Mary. So there are other examples in scripture of double fulfillment. There's no question about that. Here's the problem with that view though. Okay. The problem is that that view of double fulfillment stands or falls on, I think I would say their dating of revelation kind of ruins that argument for them since they believe that Revelation was written in around 96 AD, then how is, how is 70 AD a type of fulfillment of Revelation when Revelation wasn't even written yet? Right. That's kind of a problem in their view. Right. Um, secondly, uh, the prophecy of Matthew 24 um, was not a topological prophecy. All of the prophecies where you see uh, double fulfillment are a certain prophecy called topological meaning they weren't constrained to time. It was, it's a certain type of prophecy. Well, Matthew 24 had a specific timestamp on it. What was that? Well, he said, before this generation passes away. So since there's a specific timestamp on it that confines the substance of the prophecy to about 40 years, you can't say that that prophecy wasn't fulfilled in that 40 years. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. So although I think it's a good argument, um, it kind of... It's like they take idealism, and idealism is is a certain type of interpreting scripture, like futurism, preterism, and they kind of sprinkle it into their view in order to avoid that that glaring error. Because here, here's what you have to be careful of: is that spiritual spiritual prophecies have to manifest themselves um, in in life somewhere. So an idealist um, kind of keeps everything in the spiritual where a literalist says that everything has to be um, physical. Um, but look at the prophecy from Daniel. He references a destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, um, and an abomination of desolation, an abomination that makes desolate. Jesus comes along and says, warns his people. So from, from the time of Daniel, you have the, uh, the Maccabean revolt that's, you know, you have... Um, uh, apocryphal books uh, in in the Catholic Bible that uh, you know first and second Maccabees uh, that reference this conflict that Antiochus Epiphanes this um, wicked wicked man comes in starts slaughtering pigs brings in prostitutes and all sorts of stuff just completely desecrates the temple of God um, the Jews are weeping over this massive breach of God's law um, and they revolt. And this abomination that makes desolate, Jesus says, um, when you see this, 
know that know that the judgment of God is at hand. So Jesus points back to Daniel's prophecy and says, "You know what this looks like. They they know that in, during the Maccabean revolt um, that something like this was happening. So they knew that the Jews hearing Jesus talk knew that something like that was coming. Uh, and so he, when he's pointing back, there was a double fulfillment." something like what Daniel was talking about happened there. And then Jesus comes and says, no, that something like what Daniel was talking about is going to happen again. And then Matthew 24 um, will say, this generation will not pass away before these things take place. So we look at that and say, what happened from when Jesus says that to a generation away? 40 years later, there's this massive war, the, the Jewish-Roman war, that ends up desecrating the temple, um, idolatry, um, massive conflict, apostasy from Judaism, um, Jews leaving Judaism to side with Rome. Um, this happens exactly as, as Christ fulfilled it. So um, you have to be careful of assigning double fulfillment because in some of these instances, there was a double fulfillment. How, how many fulfillments are you looking for? Uh, are you going to continue to look over and over and over again? How many times will it have to be fulfilled before you say, oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe it was? Um, so, And the last double fulfillment was assigned by Christ himself. Right. So uh, until we have the authority to write scripture, I think I'm going to stick with the time frame that Matthew gave us. Uh, but what I will say for the whole, for the double fulfillment thing is we do believe in themes we do believe that scripture sets out a rule of life for believers and also for sinners, how they're, how they're going to work. We, we have right. Satan's playbook. Right. So the themes that we can track down in these scriptures are good and uh, profitable for us to see what they're going to try in the future. So what do we have right now? We have all sorts of crazy stuff being tried, and you can point to the book of Revelation and make some similar, you can connect some similar dots because that's how people operate. Right. That's how that's how sinners operate. Perhaps the most popular question around um, around end times is that of the mark of the beast. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of question around it. And I'll I'll recognize even for me there's there's a lot of like okay what is what is he talking about in in Revelation 13? What is the mark of the beast? But when you understand that the the first century reader has equal understanding or would have been given equal um, insight into spiritual truths. Um, There is good documented evidence that there were um, soldiers in the Roman army taking a mark of Caesar. They they were literally branding themselves with Caesar's name on on their arms and on their foreheads. Did you get that from Uh, Phil Kaiser's Revelation yes. series, yeah. So you Shout have, out. So, so you have you have these um, you have this evidence, but what does that mean for Christians all through history? Uh, what is what does taking the mark of the beast look like through history? It always will look like bowing down and expecting salvation from the government over salvation from Christ. Um, so what? You know, you'll, you can kind of get into trouble sometimes here um, is to, to point out um, in a certain sense, mask wearing and mandated vaccines are 
a mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the world system. It's the world government saying, I will save you. I can save your life. I can give you eternal happiness and peace. And when we bow down to that and say, oh, yes, government, save us, we, we're worshiping the beast. Um, and so it's a very serious thing, but it, it's less serious or it's less um, specific than I think people are often uh, looking for. The direct fulfillment was a long time ago, but the principle carries through history. Um, people are, are right now looking to, and I think this, this helps with, uh, you know, some of the, the strength of a dispensational argument is that everything, when you put everything in the future, it's infinitely malleable. Um, people would have said, uh, taking the, the yellow star under Adolf Hitler was taking the mark of the beast. That Hitler, Hitler was the beast. Um, he's, he's giving out these, these marks, um, that, that say salvation from, from the government. Some people were um, saved. Some people were excused. You have the, those governmental systems. Um, okay, what about a mandatory vaccine today? Mandatory mask wearing. What about a, a barcode on your forehead, a, a microchip? When you say that it's future, when you always put it in the future, um, it, can, it can change. If, we, if a, a microchip becomes mandated tomorrow, um, and Christians start taking it, they'll, you know, you can end up saying, oh, um, there's something worse coming. This is, this isn't it. You can kick and kick and scream and fight and then it gets enforced. Um, it's always future. It becomes infinitely malleable and thus never provable. Um, when we make an argument that something in the past was there, burden of proof is to say this actually happened in the past. Um, and so you end up having a, a really, it's a, it's a strong argument, but it's really kind of an argument from silence mm-hmm. to say that these things are always in the future. It becomes kind of funny because you begin arguing with somebody and you're like, well, this, in the past, it looks like it was fulfilled through this. And somebody will say, well, in my future hypothetical situation, it, it's fulfilled even better. And you're like, well, that's funny because only one of those actually happened. <laughs> right. You know? And if it doesn't fit perfectly you end up with a with a problem Uh, Mm -hmm. then then you say oh this is just a type this is another type and you can you can just kick the can on down the road so yeah i'll recognize that there is strength to that argument problem is i think it turns somebody who wants to read scripture strictly literally um into actually an idealist that these are these are spiritual truths that are supposed to be every christian is supposed to be ready for um, this all the time, um, and where I think, at least my understanding, will take this and say, yes, there there is understanding. There is a a mark of the beast. The the worship of the state um, is there throughout history. Every Christian has the opportunity to say, am I going to worship Caesar or am I going to worship Christ? Um, that, that that's an option that's given throughout history, um, and it takes on many different forms. Looking to the government for salvation takes on many different forms. Man, I'd just love to talk more about the Mark of the Beast, <laughs> but we're just, we've been going for a while. So so last last steel, man, is specificness. Well, this is the second to last, actually. The last steel, man, uh, their best argument that is specificness. So, for example, well, God specifically said that to Noah. God specifically said that to 
Moses. God specifically said that it, it, it's derived from this literal hermeneutic that uh, the specificness thing is it's described from it's derived from the literal hermeneutic. Um, the problem with that is that Second Timothy three sixteen teaches that Scripture is profitable for every Christian for every area of life. All Scripture is profitable for all Christians for all of life. That flies directly in the face of this whole. That was specific to that person. It doesn't apply to you. Does that right. make sense? Yep. So, uh, of course, there are specific situations in Scripture where uh, you don't pick up a hammer and a nail and start building an ark. But there's a principle attached to that situation that's going to trickle through to your life. So the question isn't uh, whether or not there's a principle there for you. It's what's the principle. Right. Uh, so I think... It would take a long time to go through every argument and figure out how that trickles down into eschatology, but just the mere, it just falls flat on its face from the get-go, so I don't think it's worth it. Uh, the last one I wanted to bring up, this isn't the best argument, but it is the most effective. Hmm. Can you guess what it is? Fear-mongering. I think that is the, I, just, I think that is their most effective argument uh, when when somebody starts looking into another eschatological view, uh, I think more than likely, they're they're more likely to uh, be hit with, well, that's dangerous. Uh, you're getting into weird stuff. Um, you're creeping me out. I'm worried about you. I'm, I'm praying for you. Uh, little things where they try to scare you into not exploring uh, another topic. Although it's illogical, manipulative, and wrong, it is the most effective, in my opinion. Yep, and I can see that. It, it kind of, it does scare. So I wouldn't even. It, that's not even necessarily an argument, which is part of the problem. Um, and I've seen, not even on the topic of um, end times things. Um, one of the uh, an atheist that I was listening to one time um, talked about uh, the strongest arguments that Christians have um, against atheists is personal emotional experience because those are irrefutable um and so yeah i can, I can see that if you can appeal to emotion um you have to be really cautious when oh what what is the feeling that i'm feeling am i feeling um scared because i'm gonna lose friends over this or my family members are not going to talk to me anymore or are am i am i scared that um you know, I'm going to get kicked out of my church. Am I going to get um, run out of town because I I somehow apostatized? Um, it, th- this this is funny. I, I've pondered this. is like um, if post-millennialism, um, if this is walking away from the faith as dispensationalists will view, um, that, that mass exodus of a mass people are running to post-millennialism, and that's apostasy then that's the sign of the end of the age because um, <laughs> the dispensationalist wants to look at and say, well, there's supposed to be a final apostasy, a, a massive apostasy before Christ comes. So um, th- this, this rebellion, we have to be in that because look at all these people abandoning dispensationalism. Um, if a bunch of people stay, you know, and, and this is part of the, the inconsistent um, reading into things uh, in the culture is to try and force fit things into uh, the text to apply to yourself. Um, and and I think that's where it comes down to being 
dangerous is that, oh, we live in the last days. Therefore, these things that I'm seeing in my life have to necessarily be fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment of scripture. Um, and so you have to, you have to be careful of, of that type of reading of history. Um, where I think it's, it's more helpful to look at history and say, yes, these spiritual principles are being applied. There was a, a really, a, a real physical fulfillment um, for the, the audience who these books were written to, the scriptural books were written to, that they had um, fulfillment. You don't read of a Mark of the Beast um, to an, a first century writer and go, oh man, I'm so glad that I don't have to take that microchip that's going to be ri- that's, that's going to be given in 2500 AD. You know, it's 2500 years away. Oh man, I better not. I I better be really careful not to take that mark of the beast that's 2500 years away. <laughs> you know, um, but rather that there was there was temptation there for that person, and there's temptation here for us today um, to do these things. And so, you know, the emotion that goes into these things and God gave us emotions and those are good. And, uh, and some ways I think he does use our emotions to, to steer us away from heresy. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times it's like, Ooh, this just doesn't feel right. You know, that, that, that's, that can be God's leading. Um, but you have to be really gar- guarded of, um, when somebody says, Oh, you're getting into really weird stuff. Um, take that. Uh, and I, I only encourage anybody. Somebody says, Hey, sounds like you're getting into weird stuff step back for a second and re- and reevaluate okay how weird is weird and how do we define what weird is um and is this am i deriving this from just purely my emotions is my interpretation my emotions um driving my interpretation of scripture or um am i afraid of being rejected by um reading scripture this way um and so i, I think when you look at scripture um optimistically and and read it and see that there are spiritual truths that apply to everybody um it actually lets it pop into vivid color um but knowing that the hallmark of god's word is fulfilled prophecy and then to be able to see prophecy fulfilled from the authors and that the author's audience the people that they actually wrote to would have seen those things fulfilled um i think is a real testament to god's faithfulness um, in history to, to fulfill prophecies uh, as as they're given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I, I think just don't let anybody manipulate you when it yeah. comes to the fear-mongering thing. Uh, it's going to, sometimes it can be hard, but just laugh it off because most of the time, look, if, if it's freaking you out, then just look at the scripture. And if the scripture, if you're like, okay, well, I see it in scripture, so... Well then, don't be freaked out. So, yeah, I think uh, that's our steel man, and uh, I hope uh, we didn't offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a lot. If I would recommend anything here, like I, uh, like we were talking about earlier, I would point uh, people back to um, the writings of Jonathan Edwards. So the the stuff that we're talking about here is not um, brand new. No. And, you know, even America, uh, the early days of American theology um, are founded on a, a post-millennial ethic um, that Christ was going to do something big in history. Um, and so 
looking back at the, the writings of Edwards um, really, really helps to say, oh, look, there, there was optimism in the founding of America, a systematic optimism from scripture. Um, and everybody in, a, in Protestant Christianity looks at Edwards and says that he was a, an influential um, founding, Christian founding father of, of the, the church. Um, and, and to see those things. So I, I'd recommend the writings of, of Edwards as he kind of looks. Um, the, the title, he has one book that, that's escaped, the title is escaping me right now, um, but where he just specifically talks about the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission hmm. um, in history. Yeah, John Owen, his sermons are really good too on postmillennialism. His sermons through, uh, some, some through Hebrews, some through Second Peter 3, uh, very good, very, very good. Any other closing thoughts? No. All right. I don't have any. Well, we appreciate you guys joining us. Um, again, if you have any que- if you listen to an episode and have questions or objections, shoot them to us. Um, our Facebook page, our Instagram page, or our email address, born to rain podcast at gmail.com. Uh, shoot those over. We'd love to discuss them. They're great. We've already received a lot of them. Some of them we, we addressed today, uh, but as we continue to go on and address more and more topics, um, these are the exciting things and we and we like to hear from our listeners and be able to address uh, the questions that you guys have so uh, thanks again for listening we will catch you guys next time see you